0: Welcome to Built Blocks, the podcast about cities, architecture, buildings, the built environment, and everything in between. For more than a year, I've been obsessed with the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. While doing research on old churches being retrofitted as brew pubs, I stumbled across Taft's Ale House in Cincinnati's Over the Rhine neighborhood. From there, I went deep into research, the architecture the flight to the suburbs, the abandonment, the subway that was built in the 1920s but was never used, and then, new life for Cincinnati, a comeback. To find out more about Cincinnati, I spoke with Randy Sims, an award-winning urban planner who founded a site called Urban Cincy back in 2007. Sims grew up on Cincinnati's west side and graduated from the University of Cincinnati's nationally acclaimed School of Planning. He's put together a team of writers and reporters that have elevated the conversation about urban planning, placemaking, and what's making Cincinnati move on up. My obsession grows with the city of Cincinnati. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks for joining me. So there are a few things I know about Cincinnati. Um, It's the Big Red Machine, the 1970s Reds, um, the famous sitcom, um, of which I will not mention it by name, um, maybe the riots in the early part of the 2000s. And, and now it seems from what I'm reading in um, you know local blogs and places like Urban Cincy and um, um, other places, it seems like Cincinnati is, is having some sort of a renaissance and it's, it's growing and it's, it's booming. Um, what's, what's been going on the last 15 years or so?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, I, I think you're pretty much spot on and, uh, uh, similar to a lot of other people around the country with their memory of Cincinnati. They remember, you know, the, the seventies and eighties when the, when the city was hot as baby boomers would say, you know, the reds were doing well, the bangers were doing well. Uh, there was the sitcom you mentioned, there was all this stuff happening, a lot of office construction, but, uh, you know, after that time, the city really kind of fell into the doldrums and didn't really do anything for about 30, 40 years, it seemed like. Uh, lost, lost a lot of population, lost some jobs. Uh, and then in 2001, uh, we had the race riots, which obviously far predates the uh, Black Lives Matter movement that we see today. And this was a real uh, this was a real turning point for the city They they had to kind of look in the mirror and decide, you know, well, what do we do? Uh, We've got a lot of problems on our hands, you know, population loss, economic struggles. You know, uh, we've got this big racial divide in our community. Uh, And so they, you know, they decided to start tackling these issues one by one. They took on massive police reforms and they started addressing uh, race issues uh, fairly head on, perhaps could still be doing more. but looking at things like how do we improve the public school system and how do we improve public parks and how do we improve these things that help people across all economic spectrums. Uh, Then at the same time, I guess it was around 2003, uh, you know, the corporate leaders started to realize they were having a real hard time uh, attracting and retaining uh, young talent in the city. So they decided, well, we're going to figure out what this takes to get get people to want to live in Cincinnati and Procter and Gamble had a kind of a infamous situation after they acquired Gillette, which was based in Boston. They offered a bunch of people relocation packages and, uh, the vast majority of them decided, no, we'll just uh, take our job loss and we'll find ourselves another thing in Boston and not relocate to Cincinnati. And so that was really a wake up call. And so corporations like, uh, Procter and Gamble, like Kroger, like Macy's, uh, they wanted to figure out, you know, is it possible to stay in this community and attract young talent by making, you know, educated, informed investments and decisions that change the way things are done? Or do we need to think about relocating? Uh, fortunately for Cincinnati, they uh, they decided on the former and they decided to make these changes uh, and they decided to make these investments, things like renovating uh, Fountain Square and uh, things like investing in the riverfront uh, to re- rebuild it from what was a floodplain to now a world-class park and mixed-use neighborhood, uh, and then investing in over the Rhine, uh, buying up hundreds and hundreds of abandoned uh, historic properties that date back hundreds of years, and then investing in them. Um, and these have paid uh, paid dividends for them. Now these companies are doing well. They're they're having uh, good good uh, results in attracting and retaining their young talent. Uh, The startup uh, community uh, has really been uh, bolstered by these efforts. Uh, You're seeing lots of uh, small business growth as well. And so I think that's really been the change is the the corporate and civic community decided to make smart, uh, informed investments in public assets that would then encourage uh, private sector investment that would follow it. And
0: and and do you think? I mean, I know this sound that might be uh, original to Cincinnati and what happened there. But I mean, are other cities kind of using that as a as a playbook now? Like, hey, wait a minute, you know, we can relocate here. It's cheaper than where we are. We can bring in new talent. We, you know, we can get good talent, and we can they can live in a in a cool place that's not you know, San Francisco and you have to have three bajillion dollars to live in a flat with three roommates. And is that that a strategy that other cities are using?
1: Well, you know, one thing is I think it's really difficult to attract corporations from one place to another uh, in the absence of offering huge tax incentives and tax breaks. Um, So Cincinnati was kind of fortunate in that effect that there's just a lot of Fortune 500 companies in Cincinnati already. So it wasn't a matter of bringing in new corporations, they were already there employing thousands and thousands of people. Um, so, you know, the, the new thing now, I think a lot of cities, the playbook that you're seeing is they're investing in kind of incubators and startups and, you know, small businesses in a way. And that's, that does seem to be uh, something that's being copied around the country, especially in these kind of mid-sized markets like Cincinnati or like Kansas City or Pittsburgh or uh, places like
0: that. Uh, so let's let's jump to Urban Cincy. Um it was one of the you know first websites I found when I was kind of digging around and it's a pretty full media site. I mean you've got daily news, you've got your own podcast, um, you know, you you're you're really kind of tied into the whole renewal thing. Um what 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 was your vision and the goal when you um launched that?
1: Uh, well I started that back in Maybe my memory's going bad, but I think it was 2007 now. Uh, so I was uh, still a university student at the time. And it started out very just, you know, my personal musings about things. And uh, it was born out of frustration with the local media. Cincinnati's uh, uh, well known for having a conservative daily print newspaper, The Enquirer. And they had been basically scripting this narrative for many, many years that, you know, it's city versus suburbs and the suburbs are good and the city city isn't good. Uh, And I I got really tired of that narrative. And so I wanted to be a counterbalance to that. Uh, So I was, you know, fairly hyperbolic at the time and, uh, you know, over the top. But, uh, you know, over the years, then I added in uh, some writers and we started to provide actual, uh, you know, substantive news coverage, uh, things where we would interview people. They weren't opinion based stories anymore. Uh, And this was all just a matter of, you know, wanting to change over the years because early on there, there weren't a lot of blogs back then. And so doing an opinion-based blog was an original concept. Uh, Now, however, there's uh, at least a half a dozen of them in Cincinnati alone just focused on the city. Uh, So we couldn't continue to just do that. So then we wanted to push the local media to cover city issues in more uh, depth and detail. And so we started to look at things like uh, you know, demographic changes, and uh, what is gentrification, and uh, how does displacement factor into that? And uh, you know, what what are the real substantive details behind you know privatizing parking arrangements or doing market based pricing uh, for off street parking in cities? You know, all these kind of things are very wonky city based topics, but we wanted to get them uh, being discussed at a more mainstream level in the community. And that's been successful over the years uh, we now have uh, our daily print newspaper our television stations our uh, weekly business journal all these things talking about these city specific issues at a fairly wonky level and uh, i'm quite pleased to see that now
0: I, I mean it's it's just from what you're telling me and i keep hearing you know journalism is journalism journalism is dead it's dying but Places like Urban Cincy and other you know type blogs, I think they're they're writing about this content that newspapers haven't been writing about, and they're they're definitely bringing it up. To you know, I think everybody knows what urban planning now is, and urbanism is, and placemaking is now. Where five years ago, you know, I don't I don't think that was even part of the conversation. I think a lot of people, you know, through blogs like yours, are kind of elevating that, which I think is great. So um I sent over a, a list of well I guess they're more buzzwords than keywords that I wanna throw out. And it's wanna kinda of get your first take on what comes to mind when I throw these words out. And and I to to be honest, I these words are um, you know I'm reading a lot about them in, in different cities it's here in, in Portland, Oregon. Um, they're used they' They seem to be thrown around a lot too. So I'd love to get your take on how they relate to what's going on in Cincinnati. So let's use, let's, let's, let's throw a, throw a, uh, an easy one first bike lanes.
1: Well, bike lanes in Cincinnati are a very, uh, hot issue right now. Um, We've seen, uh, as a community, explosive growth and growth in the number of people commuting uh, by bicycle, which is great. Uh, and the bike share system in Cincinnati, uh, which is called Red Bike, has been uh, wildly successful, uh, far exceeding expectations, and it's grown at a faster rate. And now it's the largest bike share in uh, the tri-state region. So that that would be Ohio, Kentucky, or Indiana. It's uh, by far the largest one, Columbus as the second largest uh, system in place. Uh, However, Cincinnati struggles from a a couple different things. Uh, The first is that it's a very hilly city. Uh, So uh, it struggles with people getting from one level of the city to the other level. So the center city is in what locals call the basin. Uh, It sits basically in the floodplain or slightly above the floodplain but the lower level uh, of the region. And so it's easy for people to bike around and walk around in that area, uh, the university and the second largest employment uh, district is called Uptown, and that is up the hill, as the name would suggest. And uh, it's actually you know quite a bit of a challenge to get up that hill. It's uh, uh, it's about an 8 percent grade going up and it's a, and it's a long trek. Uh, so it's not a pleasant way for people to bike. Uh, so usually people, people t- tend to bike or walk within the uptown area or within the basin area and not so much between the two. Um, and the same thing with the Eastern and Western neighborhoods, uh, they're on different, uh, Hill levels as well. Uh, the, the second big issue here is, uh, an issue that's common to a lot of cities. There's been opposition and uh, hesitation from the community uh, to embrace bike lanes, uh, particularly uh, physically protected bike lanes, uh, but also by policymakers uh, because of that community uh, hesitation, if you will. So that's uh, we've only got one uh, protected bike lane in the city right now, and it's been hotly debated even after its uh, implementation. Uh, we hope to get a lot more of that. Specifically, I, I think protected bike lanes are incredibly important to get more people out riding bikes, not just the guys wearing spandex and uh, the guys with you know uh, curly mustaches. Uh, so uh, we need we need families riding bikes. We need kids out there. We need you know uh, professional women. We need all different demographic groups riding, not just uh, you know the young and fit.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple of those here in Portland, and my stress level just drops when I go on a protected bike lane. You just feel, you know, you've got the curb next to you, you've got a walking path next to you and then the traffic. And it just sure. you know, it feels like you can relax sure. when you're riding sure. your bike and when, something like that. So my, my, I, this is a complete anecdotal theory, but I've been Researching this for probably for six months or so. and and my my thing is that when a brew pub or brewery comes to town or comes to a main street that's been struggling for a while, that's it's almost like the new Starbucks or you know, the new whole Whole Foods. It means it means the neighborhood it's arrived. And that means changes afoot and things are going to start happening. And they've arrived. So I guess my next buzzword is, coffee shops and and brew pubs what's what's your take on those
1: well yeah I'm uh, I'm starting to get uh, frustrated with the beer beer situation actually I think Cincinnati probably has a stronger brew pub uh, uh, community than a coffee shop community which I find uh, a bit odd but uh, the some of the most popular stories we publish on uh, Urban Cincy are when new brew pubs are opening in new neighborhoods. So we just wrote one about this neighborhood. It's on uh, the West side of the city called college Hill, uh, with a nice traditional, you know, walkable business district, but it's been being scrappy and trying to come back to life with new energy and a brew pubs opening there. And so people went wild for it. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting to see this ch- taking place in cities because street level retail and just retail in general is such a rapidly changing situation for cities in general uh, with, with the you know, rapid increase in online shopping and, uh, you know, uh, like one button push uh, shopping and delivery, you know, whether it's by drone now uh, or just the quick service delivery from like Amazon Prime and stuff like that it makes it really tough for retailers. So I'd like to see more than just coffee shops and brew pubs going into our neighborhood business districts, you know, things like clothing options or, or what have you, but, uh, that's, that's tough. Uh, you know, uh, you see it in some other places, but they typically tend to be chains. Uh, I feel, uh, so you see it in Pittsburgh, you see it certainly in Portland, uh, places like that, that have been established wealthy cities, uh, for a little while now, but, uh, And you see it in Cincinnati too, just to a lesser extent.
0: So the next buzzword, well, two buzzwords. It's growth or the population growth, and we talked a little bit this at the beginning. But are you seeing um, more people moving into the central city? Um, You know, the the downtown area. An influx of, I mean, besides the, you know, the population from the corporations are 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 out of state folks. M- moving in.
1: Well, that's a that's a good question, because for the first time and it's I think it's been 50 years since now he is posting population growth again. Um, it's very, very modest, uh, but it's growth. And in the Midwest, uh, we'll take it. Uh, that puts us among some of the few cities that are actually posting population growth in the Midwest. Um, with that said, uh, when you dive into the numbers, it's almost exclusively from uh, natural births. Uh, it's not from uh, in-migration. And so that's that's the next big challenge uh, that we at Urban Cincy have talked about a lot. And we would like our policymakers to be focused on it more is how do you change those in-migration numbers to be more robust, um, not just from outside the country, which is obviously something our community could really uh, focus on, but also from other states. Uh, we have a lot of out-migration, some in-migration from other states, uh, but there's, we're not seeing much of a gain. Like I said, the, the population growth is coming from natural births, uh, and I guess you can thank the large Catholic population in Cincinnati for that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the center city, though, has grown. I think a lot of that is uh, regional movements of people, uh, people moving from the suburbs back into the city. Um, some of that, of course, are people relocating for jobs, uh, which are, you know, predominantly located in uh, the downtown area, but also uptown. So the downtown and uptown areas have seen terrific job growth and also terrific population growth over the last uh,
0: five years, I would say. Well, kind of on that same note, two of the buzzwords are millennials and baby boomers. And what I've read and what I've been writing about, it's just, I, you know, I, I know a lot of millennials want to work and live in the city centers and boomers are leaving their suburban homes and they want to come in closer. I mean, is this, is this happening there as well?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, in terms of the center city uh, population gain, I think you see a nice uh, balance between younger and older people, Uh, you know, probably skewed more towards younger uh, people, but not overwhelmingly. Uh, I think, you know, in a city, Uh, Like Cincinnati or a lot of other of its peer cities, uh, the baby boomers are really going to struggle. uh, Who are out in the suburbs right now because they simply won't have the mobility options uh, as they continue to age. Uh, There, you know, in most of Cincinnati's suburbs, there aren't even buses that are reliable or even present, uh, much less a train or you know a walkable business district or something like that. So um, they're going to be forced to get in a car every time, and if they can't drive, then what do they do uh, do they want to go to a retirement home or a, a community like that I would guess many don't want that uh, and so you're starting to see I think uh, baby boomers come to that realization very slowly uh, and they're they're opting to go into the city because just it's a quality of life issue for them as they as they uh, continue to age
0: yeah no I, I I agree i you know there was something I read in God, it was the Miami Herald probably a couple months ago. And these baby boomers are, they're stuck in their, in their single family homes that are surrounded by nothing. You know, they know in the next four or five years that they're not going to be able to drive anymore, which means they're hosed. They can't get around. They're going to have to take a, you know, a, a suburban bus to get to, um, you know, the shopping mart or rely on children or, you know, friends. And it's, not a great place to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, that you don't have many options, number one, but also it's bad for your health, uh, number two. I mean, you, you look around the world, uh, whether it's in Europe or Asia or South America, people just get a lot of passive exercise uh, that they you know they, they never think about. It. It's, well, I'll go out to lunch today uh, from, from my office. Well, in a lot of American cities, people hop in their car, drive five minutes uh, to the lunch spot, and then drive five minutes back. Uh, in most of the world, that's, uh, ludicrous. You would walk 10 minutes to lunch and walk 10 minutes back. So right, right off the bat, just one simple choice. Uh, not only do you have a mode, uh, a mode share split, uh, difference between the two different communities, but you also have, uh, you know, life, uh, a healthy life choice difference. You're getting 20 minutes of, you know, light walking versus 10 minutes of sitting on, sitting on your butt in the car again and then you've got the same thing for your commutes and all the other trips that you make throughout the day so um, you know these kinds this kind of passive exercise just improves your overall health and there's lots of studies to back this up uh, and you know as are not just the baby boomers but as the you know Gen Xers the Millennials uh, these people as they age too and continue to live longer and longer lives we need to be more cognizant of how we design our communities so that way people can live healthy fit, and happy lives.
0: Yeah, and and where walking isn't a deliberate thing where you have to, you know, set your watch and say, I have to go out for my walk now. You just, you're just walking because you're going, you're doing your stuff. So here's here's the last buzzword I have. Um, Affordability is is, um, over the Rhine and and the other downtown areas, are they still fairly affordable for um, young families and you know, young folks coming into the workforce.
1: This is a really complicated issue, as you might understand. Uh, I guess, you know, the most of the, the CBD, most of the CBD area is quite expensive now. You, the new apartments that are coming online are often more than two thousand a month, uh, which in Cincinnati is pretty expensive. Uh, you're talking stuff like uh, two, three dollars a square foot. Uh, so. Uh, that's relatively expensive by Cincinnati standards. Uh, over the Rhine, you know you're seeing condos. they are building affordability into a lot of these projects. Um, you know a certain percentage of the units must be kept at affordable levels uh, but the question is is is, is it enough? Uh, and then if that's enough, then is that supporting what is increasingly being referred to as you know kind of the uh, um, the what do you call the Basically, the workers in the neighborhood is their workforce housing. Uh, so they may not be poor; they may be just above, you know, uh, HUD's uh, level for qualifying for affordable housing, but not by much. Uh, so you know that factors into the whole debate about you know what is minimum wage, how much does parking cost, all these kind of things. Those can become increasingly uh, tough burdens for people who are just you know working at one of these brew pubs we talked about or working at, you know, a restaurant. And so how do those people factor into the equation? Do they Are they able to live in the neighborhood right now? That's the big uh, topic of discussion for Over the Rhine. So you've got that dynamic playing, but those are two, only two of the 52 neighborhoods in Cincinnati. Uh, the rest of the neighborhoods are quite affordable. Uh, you'll find some wealthier neighborhoods out on the east side um, where there's larger, more estate-type homes or more luxury townhomes, that kind of a thing. Uh, but on the near west side, uh, on the n- northern part of the city, you find very, very cheap uh, properties, uh, very, very cheap houses. Uh, so, you know, it can be block by block. Even in Over the Rhine, you can find, you know, one block at maybe a $20,000 property and then a couple blocks over uh, a condo on one floor of a building is going for a half million. So, uh, yeah, it's really block by block
0: you guys did a, a really good podcast a couple of years ago um, about the uh, owner occupied over the Rhine and that, that was interesting. So um, there was a profile on um, a granola shotgun on this woman who had basically bought the building and, and, and retrofitted and renovated herself. Is this something that um, you still see happening there? Is this a, um, you know, a trend or or is it something that's still possible?
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, you're seeing more of this now uh, because, you know, Over the Rhine, for those who aren't familiar listening, is one of the largest uh, historic districts in the country. Uh, and it's got, you know, dates back to the early 1800s. Uh, you probably still have some buildings there from the late 1700s. Uh, the city was founded in the, in the late 1700s. Uh, so You know, you've got a lot of these really small old historic buildings in there. Uh, The preservation community in Cincinnati has grown increasingly strong over the years and more mobilized. And there's also just an interest for people who want to be in the neighborhood. They want to be in that historic neighborhood. So you see people buying these very small. It might be, you know, a two story townhouse that's just wedged in between two other buildings. And it's incredibly small, but, you know, it can work for a home. And people are just coming in and buying those and turning them into, you know, their version of a dream home and living right, right in the middle of everything. So it's, it's certainly possible. And I think you're seeing more of that now. Um, Now, like I said, as it's becoming more organic, you know, one of the, one of the first problems, uh, not to become too technical here, but one of the first problems when uh, the communities tried to renovate over the Rhine was there was no spec housing for investors or for financiers. So if you wanted to come in and you wanted to re- renovate you know, this 200-year-old building uh, three stories into a single-family townhome, uh, there was no spec product for that, so the bank wouldn't lend you money. Uh, so basically what had to happen is through these civic and corporate investments up front, they built the spec and took, took those loans themselves because they had the money to do it uh now that spec that spec product is on the market now banks are willing to finance these projects and so you're seeing smaller uh you know one-off investors uh just come in and do that now
0: so i'm curious to hear what you have to think about the new uh the new streetcar that launched gosh was it 3 weeks ago it's very very it was really recent um it sounds to me like it's been really successful from from what i've you know just read from you know newsfeed and, and headlines and that sort of thing. What, what's your uh, take on it?
1: Yeah, I think it, well, I mean, from a ridership standpoint, it's exceeded ridership expectations. Uh, and that's uh, particularly no- uh, notable because, you know, Kansas City has also famously exceeded their ridership expectations, but they're also not charging any fare. Uh, Cincinnati is charging a fare. Um, it's a small one, but it is a fare. Uh, and so that provides some barrier between people who just hop on it for no decision at all. And then, you know, whereas in Cincinnati, you have to make a decision. Do you want to pay the one or two dollars to ride it? Um, So, so, yeah, it's, it's been successful from that standpoint. Uh, The, the design and the performance of it is uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, It blends in with the historic environment very, very well and functions with the urban fabric very nicely. And I think that may have to do more with Cincinnati's historical uh, layout of the city, uh, maybe more than anything else, but, uh, there have been some glitches with some technical things like credit card readers and stuff like this and meeting headways. They're talking about because the ridership's been so high, there aren't running enough trains. So, uh, do they need to adjust the operations budget to run more trains? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but I think, you know, now the big topic is where does it go from here? Uh, A lot of people want it to go up the hill to the uptown area I mentioned. Um, I would love to see it cut across the river into Northern Kentucky, uh, where again, for those who aren't familiar, that's basically an extension of Cincinnati's downtown. It goes over across the river into Kentucky There are more high rises and very dense, uh, you know, 200 year old neighborhoods over there. Uh, and I think there's a great opportunity to, you know, expand basically the, the walkable uh, zone of the center city, uh, over there by extending it across the river. Um, so. Yeah, we'll see. And I, I think one other thing that people are starting to realize, and this is another kind of wonky topic we like talking about at uh, Urban Cinci is that it's not really so much uh, providing service for commuters. Uh, but I don't particularly think that's a bad thing. I think actually uh, we often focus in America too much on commutes. Uh, whereas if you look at various analysis Uh, commutes, uh, commute related trips each day account for something like 30% of the trips. Uh, the other 70% are just random things like popping out to lunch or going to the coffee shop to grab something for your coworkers or, you know, going to the doctor or going to meet your friends or going to dinner. All these other things are not work commute related at all. And so, um, A lot of our transport systems are designed around commute uh, and not around anything else. So we have mobility to getting to and from the office in American cities, but we don't have mobility uh, so much to get to the park or to get to the library or do these other things. And so I think the streetcar has done a good job at connecting those other 70 percent. And so those are the trips that you're seeing being made more often. So you see heavy midday ridership around lunchtime you see a uh, nice ridership weekday evenings and you see a uh, heavy ridership on weekends, uh, which is when I think you're seeing most of those trips being made generally.
0: So kind of on that same vein, well, not well, sort of, it's the old subway. Um, and it's, i I've been fascinated by that for quite some time and it's abandoned and I've heard all kinds of things. It's going to, um, but one of the plans was turn it into a, a bike trail so you can, you know, <laughs> subterraneanly go through <laughs> town on your bike and then come back up, you know, in the middle of winter. What, is there any plans for this thing?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's been plans talked about for ages. I mean, you know, during the Cold War, it was retrofitted as a fallout shelter. And then, uh, then they put a bunch of fiber optic lines during, like, kind of the tech boom in there. Then they talked about turning it into a giant you know electronic club or turning it into a mall or all kinds of stuff but uh no there's no real plans for it right now it's just kind of sitting there there's uh there's some i think water and gas lines are running through there at the moment so if you were to retrofit it into something you'd have to take those out uh, and put them somewhere else uh, which is doable uh, an engineering study was done on it uh, a few years ago now it said it could still accommodate light rail trains inside of it, uh, by modern light rail trains, uh, and the and the engineering stability and quality of the tunnels are still good. Uh, so, if if I were to guess, probably one of the best chances for it to be reused is actually probably as uh, a light rail tunnel coming into the city. Uh, you could go from the west western neighborhoods, and then as soon as you get into the center city, cut into the tunnel, which uh, which emerges, the portal is right uh, adjacent to Interstate 75. So you'd cut into this tunnel, then you'd just run uh, underground into the center city from there. Uh, You'd probably have just maybe two or three stations uh, underground. Uh, But that's not unlike what St. Louis has with its uh, light rail tunnels. I think they had an old, maybe it was an old freight tunnel that they retrofitted into light rail uh, under their downtown. So that's how they've got a tunnel for their light rail under downtown. Uh, so it's it's a similar thing. But yeah, so our, ours just has a bit of a funnier story because, you know, we built it as a subway back when we were, you know, one of America's big boom towns. Uh, even at the time, people were so bold and audacious about Cincinnati. Some Cincinnatians, uh suggested relocating uh, the national capital from Washington, D.C. to Cincinnati. Um, so <laughs> Cincinnati was really I mean, it had, you know, in the in the early years, it had a population density uh, equivalent to New York. Uh, and it was just, it was a massive boom town at the time. But, you know, things have changed. And, you know, it, it didn't quite fall off as much as uh, what other, what you would call Rust Belt cities. I don't think most Cincinnatians would call Cincinnati a Rust Belt city. Uh, we were not never so much into manufacturing like those other cities. Um, but uh, it has fallen off. And, uh, yeah, we're trying to figure out how we put the pieces back together, how we right size the city, how we improve quality, how, how we you know, fix our demographic issues, uh, do all that. So one by one, we're trying to handle this.
0: Randy, thanks so much for appearing. I, I really appreciate it. And it's, it, it, I think it's fueled my uh, obsession for Cincinnati. That's for sure.
1: That's great to hear. You should come by and uh, pay us a visit.
0: I might, I might do that. <laughs> thanks so much.
1: <laughs> thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Built Blocks. If you'd like more information on everything Cincinnati, visit urbancincy.com. For more on Built Blocks, including notes and photos, visit builtblocks.com. There, you'll find previous episodes and a link to, wait for it, a link to subscribe to Built Blocks. Please do subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.